นโมทัสสะบุคคะทัวรหัตโตสัมมาสัมบุตัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคคะทัวรหัตโตสัมมาสัมบุตัสสะนโมทัสสะบุคคะทัวรหัตโตสัมมาสัมบุตัสสะพุทธังดัมมังสังฆังนมัสสะProbably don't realize it, but there's a cold draft coming down from above the Buddha. You're all nice and cozy back there. But <laughs> anyway, contentment's what I want to talk about. <laughs> so um, first, before I get into preaching mode, want to do would like to say um, welcome to everybody. Uh, it's uh, lovely to see so many people here this evening. I, Some of you very brave souls coming down all the way from Cumbria and Scotland and and Italy, <laughs> various other places. And uh, a few days ago, wasn't expecting there to be very many people here. The, I don't know what it was like in Newcastle, but we've been pretty seriously snowed in up here, and um, maybe you have as well. But it's good that it's thawed, and we all have a A chance to be here together. I hope um, as many of you as you like, or as possible, are going to stay for the whole evening. Those of you that have not been here for a New Year's Eve ceremony before, what we um, what we generally do after the talk, people are welcome to sit in the hall here in silence. Uh, we do ask people to maintain silence for so long as you're in the hall. If you want to uh, talk and and It's um, it's very cosy over in the house, and there's also a, a table set up with refreshments. So, from the end of the talk until I think about eleven o'clock, probably we should reconvene. I don't know whether anybody else has got better estimations than myself, but between eleven and twelve, there's an opportunity to. Uh, join together in, in what we call our uh, ritual of forgiveness and aspiration. And there's, in sitting here in the middle of the the carpet here, this table over here is a um, container which people are invited to bring forward their uh, piece of paper that um, we will have written on uh, all the things that we want to either be forgiven for or to forgive. Uh, there's, there's plenty of paper, hopefully down the back of the hall, there and plenty of pens. And and uh, before 11 o'clock, we could all give some some thought, give some time to considering this aspect of forgiveness in our lives. What what may have happened over the last year, either what we might have done, or what others might have done to us that we want to bring forgiveness to. So what we usually do is, on one side of the piece of paper, deal with things that we want to ask for forgiveness. I don't know about you, but I don't find it very difficult to come up with quite a list. And every year, I don't think the list gets any shorter. So I always feel I've got to ask for forgiveness from quite a string of people and the planet. And then on the other side of the piece of paper is is a. Where we reflect on where we want to offer forgiveness. This is also very important. We, 
it's a ritual, and, and, and rituals can be very powerful. And the effect of, of this is that we can choose to end the year letting go, letting go of things that, well, we don't, we don't really want to hang on to these resentments, but sometimes it's difficult to let go. And a ritual like this, where we all share the same good intention to begin the new year fresh and with, with good aspirations and to end the old with, without hanging on to old things that are hanging around, and, and that we all witness each other as well. Everybody has a chance to come up one by one and, and uh, burn their piece of paper in this container here. And then the other part of the ritual is the aspirations, which is the other piece of paper where we can spend some time contemplating what's ahead of us and what we'd like to work on, what we'd like to do, where we'd like to go with ourselves inwardly, our inner journey. And I don't imagine there's anybody here who's finished their journey. And if there is, please come forward. <laughs> you can have the microphone. <laughs> okay, well, for the rest of us, it's, um, you know, we have things that we do think are worth doing. There, there are things in life that, that's, that's basically why we're Buddhists, that's why I'm a Buddhist, because I do feel that there is a real reality, I trust there is a real reality, there is something I can do about this situation, this heart situation. There's a limitation to what I can do about the outer situation, I do my best, well, I try anyway, but the inner situation does need very conscious intention. We need to be very careful and look, and to be honest and to see where we're weak. And the good thing is, one of the wonderful things about practice is we, just by making the determination just by generating the wish, there's a wonderful thing we can do is we can wish consciously that this creates a certain momentum in the mind. Generate a conscious wish. This is very different from just wallowing in a heedless desire. I mean, the heedless conditioned desires that we're all familiar with, and we can just follow those, that's one thing. But to generate a wholesome wish, a conscious wish, you know, I sincerely wish or I sincerely aspire towards such and such. And what we do, what happens when we do that, is we, we generate a certain momentum in the mind. Mm. A wholesome momentum. Now, if we're too idealistic, we lose touch with reality. Like some of you were here a few weeks ago, I gave a talk about that, that gentleman whose wife used to say that he was so heavenly minded that he was no earthly good because he was always praying all the time. And, but he was hopeless when it came to doing anything around the house. And So being too heavenly-minded that you're no earthly good, of course, that's out of balance. That's not useful. And we can become idealistic. We can become too lofty in our aspirations. But on the other hand, if we don't engage altruistic aspirations, well, we're missing out on a lot. You know, there's... And what a lot of what theistic religions engage with when they're doing prayer is what we as Buddhists uh, engage with when we talk about cultivating altruistic aspirations, generating wholesome wish, wishes consciously. And, and this is something we can exercise. So anyway, on this evening, the New Year's ritual, we have an opportunity to give some thought to the things we want to aspire towards. 
and uh, write down a piece of paper and then after burning our piece of paper here and uh, forgiveness, I think forgiveness, and come forward and there's another big container up here on the shrine and we offer our aspirations into the shrine because this is really, this is what, this is an incense dish we offer them into because this is really, this is real incense, this is real fragrance. Wholesome aspirations are really beautiful fragrance. You know, the incense just makes a lot of dust and ash and means we've got to repaint the walls. You know, I mean, it's got its place, but altruistic aspirations, really wholesome wishes, these are really fragrant, something the Buddha praised, something he spoke about, the day was delighting and feeding on the fragrance of such things. So, so briefly, that's what our ritual is about this evening. So after the talk, if you'd like to uh, go and have some refreshment, or you'd like to stay in here, come back, just be, be quiet, give some thought to these themes, and help yourself to the paper and pens down the back there, and and then uh, put down in paper that which you're moved to offer this evening. So I started off by saying that I wanted to speak about contentment because I think if we, as I was saying in the meditation instruction, if we, if we lose touch with this potential we have for being contented, then we can spend all our life trying to become contented. But what we're doing by... by following this desire to become contented, actually is becoming more discontented. And it's a wonderful thing to realize that, that we can disengage from that, disengage completely from it, and, and choose to be with this. And I think it's a good uh, barometer for practice, really, if you want to see how is practice going, so are you becoming more contented? And we can be contented with all sorts of things. It doesn't mean to say that we're being contented with uh, having a good time, even when things are not so good. Like recently, uh, what day is it today? Saturday. So it's nearly two weeks ago, our boiler went on the blink. And we have a very expensive service contract on these boilers, three boilers we have, and this expensive service contract, which I don't like paying, but we think, well, it's the responsible thing to do, and they've got this lovely 24-hour service. They'll come out in 24 hours and make you warm and cosy again. And so it went on the blink on Sunday. Well, of course, you ring up. They don't have an answer phone, so there's no way that they're going to come out on Monday. So then you ring out on Monday, ring them up on Monday, and 24 hours, so they come out on Tuesday. And then they say, oh, well, it needs a new part, and we don't know where we can get the part, but I'll ring somebody. He says, oh, well, you know, his car's broken down, so, well, we'll get back to you, and it might be between two and eight days. Meanwhile, there's 14 of us living here, guests from all around the world, and two and eight days, and say, oh, well, okay. But he says, well, I'll ring you back anyway. And as you know, well, they never ring us back. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six, day seven, day eight. Nobody rings back. It's Christmas, of course. Nobody's interested in a bunch of Buddhist monks freezing on the hill. <laughs> well, you know, it was actually quite, quite lovely that we had, there's 14 of us staying here, and the, the, on the, I think the 12th day, not only was the boiler down, but the electricity went. For 7 o'clock in the morning, or 10 past 7 in the morning, the electricity went down. And it was out all day. 12 hours, 13, 14 hours. So there's no electricity, no boiler in the main house. Well, there was a boiler in my cootie, so, you know. No, actually, there was, no, that was down as well because the electricity was out. So everything was out. And, you know, it was quite lovely. And I expected the place to be quite miserable. And I think Ajahn Abhinanda might have had the same expectation because he, 
over in the reception room over there, I went into the reception room, or I didn't have an underwent in the reception room, and what was going on? But all the residents, all the guests were sitting around having a spontaneous renga, sitting down there writing poetry together, all wrapped up in jackets and things and little tea lights on the carpet and the cosiest little scene you could ever imagine. Now, how would you think that, I don't know, 12 days without heating in the hall, in the house, no electricity, no food, no television. I don't know, was it eight nationalities, nine different nationalities, Italians, Serbians, Slovenians, Chinese, Thais, Brazilians, English, Scottish, and I don't know who else. <coughs> Russian. Russian. Isn't that a good thing? I think that's a wonderful thing. I think it's really inspiring. And, you know, if you tried to make that happen, I don't think you could, really. I don't think it's, you know, very easy to make people freeze and go hungry. <laughs> Not speak the same language and write a poem. Now, you know, you, I think you've got to be really somebody. Now, I think the Lord Buddha is somebody. And uh, this teaching is something that, that something like that can happen. So as I was saying, that contentment, even with things being difficult, I think is a, it's a good barometer for practice. Yeah. You can, we can gauge where our practice is going. If we're becoming more discontented, complaining all the time, I think I was only, the only person who complained in all those 12 days is because of that service contract. I'm not, I'm not happy about it. <laughs> I'm not going to mention the name of the boiler because this talk's being taped, but I, you know, I, I, I was very unhappy. But I was inspired with everybody else, disappointed with myself. But that too is actually something we can be contented with. Even disappointment. If you decide to be contented, you say, well, I can be content with being disappointed. I'm a failure. Actually, I'm not a complete failure. I'm not a total failure. I'm only somewhat of a failure. And we're all somewhat of a failure. And if we decide to be contented with it, even being somewhat of a failure is okay. What is not okay is when we see ourselves as a failure and then we say, I shouldn't be this way. And we start imagining how we should be. And, and then we become overly idealistic. We lose touch with our altruistic aspirations. About, well, I would like to think that I could be somebody who never got caught up in complaining and moaning about anything. I could make a vow tonight to do that. I could write on my bit of paper, my wholesome aspiration is to be somebody who never moans and gets lost in complaining about anything. And that is a wholesome aspiration. That's very good. But if we grasp it in the wrong way, then it becomes idealistic. And the consequence of that is that when I do get lost, as I'm bound to, because we, we all make mistakes, yeah, then I'll get heavy on myself and I'll start suffering. So it's very important when we, when we are engaging in this practice of cultivating wholesome aspirations and altruistic aspirations that we're also realistic, that we accept that we make mistakes. And if we have this balanced perspective, well, then we can do it as we go along, even learn from making mistakes. And I think the essence of it, as I started off by saying, is this, this theme of contentment. If we remember this and, and choose to feel what we feel in the moment, hear what we're thinking in the moment, and to recognize I can be contented with this, or I can get caught up in wanting it to be otherwise. 
Well, then something kicks in the mind and says, well, if you don't want things to be otherwise, it's always, you know, it's just the slippery slopes. Everything's just going to be hopeless and the world's going to fall apart. Well, you can come up with that thought and you can believe in it if you wish, but you could also listen to that thought and say, well, maybe, but maybe not. I'll just practice for a while and see what happens. I'll see what happens if I practice being contented. Now, if the truth is that after being contented for six months that I've made things worse in my life and for everybody else, well, then I'll change to being discontented again. Yeah. You, we're always free to do that. We, if we want to be discontented, we can. We're free to do what we like, really. Yeah. But I think we'll find that the evidence is that if we make the choice to be contented, then what happens is the mind becomes more peaceful and then there's another kind of intelligence kicks in. It's called, called wisdom. And it's not me being clever or my intelligence, but the clarity is like, you know, if, you, if, you haven't got, if, you haven't got, if you've got bad eyesight and you can't find your glasses, you're walking around banging into things, kicking things, and then you put your glasses on and you can see clearly. Yeah. Or if there's no lights, you're walking around in a room, there's no lights on, you're banging around, kicking things and hurting yourself. And, so, and then you turn the lights and say, oh, right. Well, that's what, Natural understanding is. The natural understanding is born out of peacefulness. The wisdom that's born out of a mind that's contented is that kind of understanding. It's, it's a natural understanding. It's not my being clever or my sorting everything out, but it's, it's just what happens when you open your eyes. It's just what happens when the light goes on. You can see, oh, it's like that. And from that perspective, well then, also we find that we change our lives, we change the way we live. We change that we want to become more responsible. We want to be more careful with the actions that we perform, actions of body and speech and mind. Because we see the consequences. When the mind is disturbed, when the mind is discontented and upset, well then... You know, we don't necessarily see the consequences of our action. We don't even realize that we can change our actions. So this contentment, I think, is a, is a, very, uh, a very good thing to think about, to ponder on, and, and of course, to exercise. And, and when it comes to everyday life situations where, where we find ourselves, you know, there's a conflict. A, I really want to do something, but on another level, I don't want to do it. I know I shouldn't do it. I should restrain myself from doing such and such. But I really want to do it. Well, if there's a commitment to contentment, instead of being committed to getting what I want, there's a commitment to contentment, we can even hold the tension. That tension that gets built up in the mind. Wanting to do something and not wanting to do something at exactly the same time. I'm sure all of us are familiar with this. It happens a lot in life. But if we don't have this commitment to contentment, to being with, to being with, that's another way of talking, to being with what is in the moment. If we're caught up in the moment of always trying to fix things and change things, then when we do get caught up in a conflict, well, instead of being able to hold the tension and wait for a natural understanding or discernment to arise, you know, we get propelled into some form of action or other, and it might be something we really regret. Hmm. Everyday life situations, saying things, doing things, and, and then the consequences can be awful. Mm. Like with the five precepts, you, know, it's a, you can't you know, really, I mean, none of us, well, all of us know what the standard of the world is, and 
It's not, it's not generally encouraged to be impeccable with regards to the five precepts with you know, honesty and with harming living beings. And, but in our heart of hearts, we can, we can decide for ourselves, well, how do I want to be? How do I want to live? Well, even though we might decide we want to be harmless, we want to, might want to be honest, often because of our habits we still get caught up in this conflict. Well, if there's a commitment to contentment, to being with the way things are in the moment, then we can hold the tension and we can wait. Mm. We don't say something that we are going to regret later. We don't do something we're going to regret later. I read an article recently, I don't know if you saw it, it was that... Um, this um, about a, an American man who, who was weighing a, a pig, and he was going to kill it. He was going to kill this pig, and he was weighing it. And just as he was weighing it, he started hiccuping. Did anybody read this article? It's amazing. He started hiccuping. He hiccuped for years, forty times a minute. Now, be careful if you've got the intention to kill a pig. <laughs> Apparently, the last few decades, he slowed down to 20 hiccups a minute. This is true. This, this is, uh, now, I'm not sure if this is a direct consequence of you know, trying to kill a pig or not, but there are consequences to our actions. And if the, mind is not peaceful, if the mind is not peaceful and contented, then we don't see the consequences, and we just carry along doing what we're doing and think everything's okay, and, you know, and then kapow, something comes along and hits us. A couple of weeks ago, I, I mentioned my my latest cause to try and stop plastic bags coming into the monastery. We have so many plastic bags in this monastery. The place is oozing plastic bags. And when people go out in the car now, I, I try and prompt them to take their own bags with them. And do you know that there were three million tons of rubbish dumped over Christmas? Three, in this country, three million tons of extra rubbish dumped. Why? Why? Why is it dumped? Well, not because of some skillful reason. I mean, it's not because people are wanting to pollute England with, you know, plastic bags and, and old computers and whatever. It's, it's a lack of clarity. We don't see the consequences of our actions. And when we don't see the consequences of actions, well, then we do things that we, we later regret. So as we start to approach the, the new year and... Um, uh, three hours, the 2006. Um, I recommend this this theme of of contentment. That whatever's happening, not necessarily waiting till things become agreeable, or not falling for not falling for this this idea that practice means I'll do this, do this, and then I'll become contented. But being contented with how things are. I don't know if some of you saw the latest National Geographic uh, magazine that's come out. There's a, there's a big section in there about Buddhism, the dawning of Buddhism in the West. And very well done. Very, very well done. And um, well, the photographer, I think his name is Steve McCurry, a very famous photographer, a very good photographer. Spent some time visiting some of our monasteries. And um, So I was happy to look at this, at least a brief of this um, this article, and it mentions in there some of the Buddhist activities that uh, these these guys who were doing the article came across, and one of them was the disciples of Thich Nhat Hanh, 
who uh, decided that they would go to Auschwitz and practice in Auschwitz, to be contented in Auschwitz, to go there and just sit there, not to have any political angle, not to condemn anybody, not to judge anybody, because if you're condemning and judging, well, then you're not peaceful, you're not happy. But to go there and to simply be there, to see, is it possible to sit on the railway line? This, this one guy, he was of Polish-Jewish descent, and he sat there on the railway line you know, where, he said, probably his relatives were trained in to the gas chambers and sit there. Is it possible to sit there and be contented? Yeah. Now, even to suggest such a thing almost sounds perverted, but what's the alternative? The alternative to say, well, there are some situations on this planet where I can't be contented. Well, that's not the Buddhist teaching. The Buddhist teaching is to say, each situation is a situation that we can learn to be contented in. There was another example in this uh, article where a um, business executive, very well off, uh, I think he was a deputy chairman of some big company, I think it was in New York, he decided to find out what it was like for the street people. So he spent a whole weekend living out of rubbish bins and begging for money and seeing, could he practice? Could he practice sitting on the street like a lot of the other people, begging for money or rummaging through rubbish tins to get food to eat? I mention these just as a couple of examples because I think they stand out as as good images for us in our practice. We can often get into the the flow that the practice is finding a nice situation with a, a pure cotton zafu full of buckwheat husk produced by river trading and highly recommended. And <laughs> now that's a very good idea, but if we get addicted to having pure cotton buckwheat, organ- I don't know if it's organic husk or not, but you know, zafus and, and nice warm meditation rooms with lovely fragrant incense so that I can become contented and get rid of all my terrible failings, all my really, really unpleasant memories, regrets, and and get rid of all my worries about the future and become contented. If that's the flow that our practice is in, well, there's a chance that we might just compound our discontentment. I guess that's the theme of the contemplation this evening, as I like to suggest. It's not... It's not an injunction or, or, or saying how we should be, but rather to reflect on the motivation that we bring to practice. And what I would suggest is that we make a determination that whatever situation we're in is a practice situation. Yeah. Maybe we won't always have this lovely monastery here to sit in. Who knows what's going to happen? You know, maybe it's going to be an ice age and you know, felt like it the last week. Yeah. Felt like it was getting closer. Or maybe... Some other people think it's going to be um, global warming and this is going to turn into a desert. Or maybe the place will burn down and all the candles that were lit the last few days. Yeah. Yeah. You never know. Or maybe you know Buddhism will get banned. Buddhism was illegal in Korea for 500 years. What did the monks and nuns do? Just went up to the mountains, lived in caves and decided to be contented. Yeah. I often think when things are really no good, 
when I'm really having a bad time and, and, and feeling frustrated with, with things, I, just, I sometimes look at a picture of the Dalai Lama and think, you know, well, look what he practices with. You know, look what happened to his monks. Look what happened to his country. Look what happened to his people. Or Ajahn Chah, you know, sometimes you know, feeling a bit sorry for myself. And I think, well, Ajahn Chah, when he started, Ajahn Chah started Wat, Wat Ba Pong Monastery, several of his monks, you know, I think they died from malaria fever. In fact, even now, monks out there still die from malaria fever. And... But if we're committed in our practice to being contented with this, well, what it does as a result of our commitment is it brings a sense of balance, and out of that comes a sense of appreciation, appreciation for what we've got. And with appreciation, well, then the heart becomes peaceful and calm, and then there's understanding. So for this evening, as we end 2005 and begin to approach 2006, I'd like to encourage us all to contemplate this theme on contentment, contentment with what is, not with contentment that might come when we get what we want. Thank you very much this evening for your attention.